0: Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is the Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 144. Before we get started, I have a number of important shout-outs to take care of, alright? First up, I'd like to thank the Mad Humanist from the Mad Humanist podcast for leaving me a very flattering review on iTunes. Uh, It took me a while to find it because, as the mad humanist uh, himself pointed out, you need to kind of go out of your way to view reviews left by people uh, from outside your country. Uh, And and I agree with him that it's something that should be remedied. There's a little flag icon at the bottom of the page for the iTunes store or uh, the homepage for your podcast. And if you click on it, it lets you choose basically every other country, (laughs) and uh, you can see if people from uh, any of those countries have left you uh, reviews. I don't know why they don't just collect them all in uh, one place, both for the sake of the listener and um, the podcaster. But anyway, I'd like to read that review now. And uh, the Mad Humanist gave me five stars. Thank you, my friend. And it's entitled Impromptu Riffs on Atheism and Religion. And this was back on December 2014. Oh, my God. So sorry, man. And he kept trying to give me a little hints. He'd prod me a little. He'd say, do you know there's a little icon button at the bottom of your page with uh, your country's flag in it? And if you click on it, you can see uh, other versions of the iTunes store, you know. Uh... I'm sorry I was thick and it took me a while, but uh, (laughs) here I am. And uh, here's the uh, review. Phil Albertelli is a friendly guy who manages to talk more or less off the cuff regularly about religion and atheism. It's impressive and well worth a listen. Oh, and he used to be in a rock band, so I got a music riff into my title, okay? Uh, (laughs) Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And yeah, I did used to be... In a rock band that we weren't signed or anything like that. I think technically I'm still in the band. Um, it's a band that consists predominantly of my high school buddies, you know, some of my closest friends. And most of my friends have settled down and have kids and stuff. So um, even though they're still my closest friends, we don't get together to practice as much as we used to. But we released a couple of demos and uh, we kind of flirted with. Uh, The big time, so to speak. I think the closest we ever made it to becoming really big was, uh, there's a prestigious little club in, uh, Cambridge, Mass, called the Middle East, and a lot of big, uh, name bands play there. Um... A lot of up-and-coming bands play there. And this was back when the Insane Clown Posse was first getting uh, popular. And somehow the drummer we had at the time, who was a lot more motivated than the rest of us, managed to get us a gig at the Middle East. And I think we did end up actually playing the Middle East either before or after that at some point. But he managed to get us a gig opening for the Insane Clown Posse. And like i said this is right around when they were taking off i think and uh there was a big new england blizzard and it ended up getting snowed out and was never rescheduled i think somewhere we still have the tickets where our band name and uh insane clown posses are together or whatever the name of our band was palace of wisdom that was basically my idea because i'm such a huge doors freak and I also liked the poetry of William Blake and um, the writing of Aldous Huxley, et cetera, that I knew that the name of the doors came from uh, Huxley's borrowing of the Blake quote, if the doors of perception were cleansed, men would see things as they truly are infinite. And of course, there's another famous Blake uh, quote. I think it's from, I'm trying to think if it's called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell or I forget the name of which exact uh, Blake book it's from, but there's the famous quote, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And that's where I got the idea for the band name. And there might be one or two other, Palace of Wisdom's out there. (laughs) And I think what this is mean to say, but one of them's kind of goofy looking. So I'm like, I hope no one sees these guys and thinks it's us. I think we actually have a Facebook page for our band. Some of the music might be uploaded there. I haven't, uh, I haven't been on it in ages. Uh, But anyway, at some point in time, you know, I'm slowly getting some of these kind of pipe dreams out of the way, making them realities. Like, I recently finally lived up to my word and made that little uh, audio doc that I'm selling on iTunes. Um, Well, somewhere in my head, I have filed away the desire to make another album uh, by myself, too. Maybe, like, a heavy kind of trying to think, like Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails-esque type of thing, perhaps, uh, but hopefully unique at the same time. At some time, I hope to get around to it. I'd like to release, like, maybe two or three albums of my own music. And fair warning, if I ever do get around to doing that, the music will probably be kind of dark and disturbing, so <laughs> uh, be forewarned. Um, And uh, next up, I'd like to thank the one and only Heresy for becoming a supporter through uh, Patreon.com. And this is another thank you that's long overdue. And it's funny, she has a couple of online aliases. And I think when I first became online friends with Heresy, I explained why she doesn't use her name. Because of her occupation and because of the kind of strong religious mindset in the area where she's from. She doesn't want people to know she's a uh, a non-believer, um, so she uses these uh, aliases. So it's funny because I feel like I'm really getting to know her, and we've been uh, corresponding with one another since 2014. And and then it's kind of funny. I still don't know her name, but I guess that doesn't matter. You know, I still feel like we have a, a connection, and uh, I'd say we're we're online friends even. Um, yeah, so anyway, she's been supporting the show on Patreon for months now, and I recently just found out she told me, uh, recently not to give up on Patreon, which I basically had just about, uh, (laughs) for two reasons. One, because I wasn't getting any patrons, and secondly, uh, because I find their kind of site or setup, as tech-savvy as I am, kind of confusing, but I'm starting to learn my way around it. And I think John Haas, I think it was... Uh, Is one of the the people I talked to a lot on the uh, We Could Doubt Facebook page. It was either John Haas or Russ Ray was thinking of also becoming a Patreon supporter, but they couldn't find me on there. So I forget, you either have to search for The weekend in Doubt or search for Phil Albertelli. If I wasn't so lazy, I'd look it up right now and give you the actual address. Yeah, so once again, I'd like to thank Heresy, not only for the uh, monetary support, uh, but also for the moral support, all right? And uh, lastly, but not least, I'd like to thank Mike Price once again for donating to the show via PayPal. I sent Mike a uh, thank you email, and he sent me a very nice reply letting me know He's been listening to the show for roughly a a year or more now. And it's funny, I think that was in response to the neurotic scenario I kind of conjured up in my head. It seemed like Mike donated to the show right around the time I released the um, How to Insult an Atheist episode. And I imagine him listening and be like, oh, wow, this guy's really a staunch atheist. Then tuning in the next week and you hear the... uh, the audio documentary about the history of St. Patrick. But no, he's he's been listening to this show for a while, uh, about a year. Okay, and uh, another quick word about Patreon. Upon finding out that Heresy uh, had been supporting the show, I decided to create what Patreon calls a reward. It's kind of like a little thank you gift for your supporters. Um, So I put the audio documentary I just mentioned, A Brief History of St. Patrick, on there, complete with the official artwork. So if you pledge as little as 99 cents a month, uh, I believe you can quit at any time. Uh, That gives you, I guess they call it like tier one, quote unquote, access. And you can download that audio documentary, which is also available through Podbean and uh, through iTunes And speaking of uh, getting that audio documentary, if you want to support the show that way through Podbean, I think I did successfully manage to take the little bit of HTML code and uh, stick it in a little uh, text widget on Podbean, and it now shows up as a button that will allow you to buy the documentary. So I think now if you go to the Weekend Out Podbean page below the PayPal donations, uh, widget. There should now be a widget which will allow you to buy that audio documentary for 99 cents, which you can also get on iTunes for a uh, $1.99. That's the, the lowest I could price it on iTunes due to the length of the track. It's over uh, 15 minutes long. Okay, so enough of that. I feel like uh, recently I'm always plugging stuff. Apologies, but I guess everyone does it, right? If you... Uh, if you put a lot of time and work into something, I guess it makes sense that you might want to get something uh, back. I'm too hard on myself that way. I'm like that, unfortunately, in uh, my private life too. I work construction with my family, but I also have a graphic design degree and I do freelance graphic design. And uh, I think often I I kind of um, undersell my own work or I charge less than I should because this is weird. I don't want to make this into like a therapy session because there's a lot of things I like about myself, but at the same time, I probably do have some kind of like self-esteem issues and stuff too. Or maybe I'm just too analytical or too, um, almost overly conscientious And I'm like, oh, it it didn't take me long to create this art, Uh, even though another artist would probably sell it for hundreds. I shouldn't do that. Oh, okay, You know, (laughs) I'm like, what am I doing to myself? Uh, But anyway, um, I should probably get to the bottom of that someday. I don't think there's really any Darwinian advantage to uh, underselling yourself. But (laughs) so I go on. Let me see any corrections or mea culpas to get out of the way. Oh, yeah, I think uh, a couple of episodes back, I may have wrongly referred to Gordon Klingenschmidt (laughs) as an army chaplain. Technically, he's a former naval chaplain. Uh, Not that he deserves the correction. He's... um, a conservative Christian fundamentalist politician that I've uh, criticized a couple of times previously on the show. Here's a brief rundown of of some of his offenses, shall we say, uh, via Wikipedia. During a 2012 appearance on The David Pakman Show, I like David Packman Okay. Klingenschmidt debated Jonathan Phelps of the anti gay Westboro Baptist Church. The interview drew media coverage as a result of both Klingenschmidt and Westboro being known as anti gay, but not agreeing on any of the reasons why being gay is a bad thing. Klingenschmidt is also known for his efforts to shut down the YouTube channel of one of his most vocal critics, Right Wing Watch, which used video clips of his statements. Oh yeah, you can find Klingenschmidt on YouTube. I don't know why I'm plugging that guy. Probably just because his kind of bigotry and lunacy automatically becomes so apparent in his uh, videos, if you want to check those out out of morbid curiosity to see how bad the guy is. And while you're there, check out uh, some of the Weekend Doubts videos. Um, I like how I'm referring to my podcast in the third person or whatever. But uh, in 2012, Michael L. Weinstein sued Klingenschmidt for issuing an imprecatory prayer that he equated to a fatwa. The suit was dismissed by the judge, who stated that Weinstein failed to connect the prayer to any subsequent threats or actions against him. In 2014, Klingenschmidt said Colorado representative Jared Polis, who is gay, wanted to execute Christians. Both political parties in Colorado have disavowed Klingenschmidt. Klingenschmidt has also compared President Barack Obama to a demon and claims that Obamacare can cause cancer. I think I actually covered that uh, demon story way back, Uh, and, and no, he's not being hyperbolic or speaking uh, metaphorically. I think he literally accused President Barack Obama of being uh, demon-possessed. In March 2015, in response to an assault where a woman from Longmont, Colorado had her 34-week-old fetus cut out of her womb, claimed that the incident was the result of the quote-unquote curse of God for abortion. Fellow Republicans denounced Klingenschmidt's comments. As a result, Klingenschmidt was removed from the Health, Insurance, and Environment Committee, and he suspended his television ministry for six weeks. And that's the story that I was referencing when I misspoke about uh, the branch of the military he had been in. But it's good to see that even fellow Republicans uh, denounced him for that. That was just insane. And not only is it absurd and nonsensical that a woman who had her fetus cut from her womb uh, was somehow punishment from God, but it was also extremely insensitive to the victim. And whether he was aware of it or not, what it seems seems like to me is that he was using this woman's tragedy um, to further his religious agenda, which is abhorrent. Okay, on to the next correction. I think there may have been a kind of sloppy editing mistake last week. I'd been uh, making a kind of self-deprecating joke about how I used to mispronounce the name of a mathematician and philosopher, Rene Descartes, and I awkwardly repeat myself. I think I got distracted in the middle of a thought, so I came back and repeated myself and left both instances in. Um, Just an editing oversight. And there I am being probably too hard on myself again, probably didn't even need to mention that, but anyway, uh, in case anyone noticed it. Okay, so what am I going to talk about today? Well, this first thing shouldn't take long. It's just me musing on a personal anecdote. So I recently started compiling a playlist of old history channel slash discovery channel slash BBC type documentaries I've discovered on YouTube. Um, and actually, if you go to the Weekend Out YouTube channel, I think most of my playlists are public. If you want to, I think there's a playlist called History Docs, uh, if you want to check out some of the stuff I've been, uh, watching recently. Uh, one of them was entitled Flesh and Blood Decoding Christianity, and that's kind of a spooky title, but it was actually a really thoughtful, um, documentary on, kind of gory or bloody iconography throughout the history of Christianity and why Christians do seem to focus on, on some of this um, bloody death imagery I guess and I think it was hosted by this um by this kind of middle-aged Irishman uh, this kind of charming guy uh, well spoken with an Irish lilt I, I forget what his academic credentials were but it was it was a cool little Documentary, or is it an Irish brogue? Can you use lilt as a noun? I think so. Lilt, lilting. Anyway, uh, I noticed uh, it's unbelievable how offended believers will get, even by the most kind of objective and factual documentaries that tackle religious topics. People are getting kind of defensive, saying that Christianity isn't obsessed with death or pain, etc. And I think it probably depends on what strain of Christianity we're talking about. I think, isn't it in Protestant sects where you don't really see a suffering Christ on a cross, you just basically see the cross? But I know personally from being raised Catholic, it is very commonplace to show a suffering Christ on on a cross. And so it got me thinking about my past as a little kid. I I can remember being really creeped out, especially at night, by uh, crucifixes. My mother always had religious iconography in her room, kind of like busts of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, a crucifix on the wall, etc. Yeah, so especially at night in a shadowy room, seeing this kind of agonized... Uh, figure on a cross it used to really kind of scare me or creep me out and I don't think it's because I was a little devil boy or anything and had a natural aversion to crucifixes Uh, I think there's probably two logical reasons why I was kind of put off by gory crucifixes as a kid one probably has to do with the fact that we're wired to read facial expressions and uh to read emotions, so when you see, even though it's not a real person, when you see this kind of bloody effigy and you you see this pain racked face, I think it's instinctively going to uh, put put you off, especially uh, a small sensitive child. And then i think the other part of it is probably uh what they call the uncanny valley and i think i talked about this on the show before it's kind of a fascinating topic and i don't know who coined the term uncanny valley but you hear it used a lot regarding things like japanese robotics you now the japanese are always trying to create more and more lifelike uh robots Well, supposedly the Uncanny Valley is this strange place where something looks really close to being a real human, but you still sense that something's off and it's not quite natural and it kind of instinctually repulses you or creates this feeling of revulsion or discomfort. And, you know, and I think it has to, and I got to give credit where credit was due. I remember Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid podcast discussed the Uncanny Valley on one episode, and he gave some good examples, things like mannequins, dolls, clowns. These are all things that look human, but not human enough, and there's something unnatural about them, and they can kind of creep us out. And I think there can be a little bit of that with religious iconography too sometimes. And it's probably why in a lot of horror movies we'll see the use of religious iconography. I'm trying to think if it was the first Exorcist or if it might have been the Exorcist three, but there was like the giant crucifix in the church and it suddenly opens its eyes and you're like, whoa. (laughs) or, uh, the, or remember the, the original horror movie Carrie, not the, not any of the remakes, but the one with Sissy Spacek and her mother would lock her in the creepy little, um, prayer closet with the little religious statues and things. You know, I remember I used to feel guilty as a kid that I got put off by that kind of iconography. But when when I think about it rationally, it, it probably makes sense. We're probably wired to be, uh, put off by stuff like that. And that reminds me of when I was a kid, I used to have a lot of nightmares about mannequins too. Really freaky. I remember like walking through the shopping mall with my parents as a little kid and you'd see like the mannequins in the windows, especially the ones without the faces. And I think it it reminds me too, because I like some some horror survival video games. I don't know if any of you guys listening have ever played any of the uh, Silent Hill video games. And there's a lot of mannequin-esque monsters that don't have faces and stuff, and now I'm just getting creeped out talking about it. But anyway, the Uncanny Valley. <laughs> and on a side note, if if you guys want to get creeped out, that reminds me of uh, Look Up Robert the Doll on the Internet. Uh, this creepy little doll that's supposed to be haunted that kind of looks like a faceless bear or something. Really weird, beady little eyes. Um almost like a weird conical face. (laughs) And this podcast is going into some weird territory tonight. And one more note on the Uncanny Valley. I know I mentioned its use in the field of Japanese robotics, but I just looked it up and I guess the concept can be attributed to robotics professor Masahiro Mori. But while I'm speaking of kind of cognitive bias or whatever, I was just mentioning how hostile people can be towards even the most objective and truthful of documentaries having to do with religion. But I think repeatedly on this show, I've kind of beat up a bit on that Ancient Aliens television series and talked about how even, I I have to admit, it's kind of a guilty pleasure and it's fun to watch that I think it's irresponsible on behalf of the History Channel to uh, even air that show. Because I remember the documentaries that originally gave birth to the uh, series. The The documentaries at least had opposing viewpoints, but the Ancient Aliens series, it's ju- you're just hearing one viewpoint. You're just hearing from ancient astronauts, theory proponents, and they're totally let off the leash to spew their crazy theories without being checked from people on the opposing side. And even the narration is sometimes misleading, and we would hope that at least that the uh, narration would be objective or factual. But anyway, uh, so I stumbled across this video called Ancient Aliens Debunk. And it's an over three-hour-long video. You can find it on YouTube. And I believe—and I don't say this— Pejoratively, uh, I think it's an amateur video. I mean, man, it's better than my videos. I make amateurish videos. <laughs> this, you know, it's it's a amateur video, but it's still, it's really well done enough. Where at first you're kind of like, oh wow, did some big studio put this out? It looks kind of slick, you know? But you can kind of tell after watching for a while that it's probably an independent uh, project that someone put together. And I'm kind of jealous of the guy. He has over 4 million views on YouTube for that video alone. Um, So this is, like I said, a three-hour long video, and there's probably one or two places where I kind of disagreed with the guy, where I thought that maybe his facts were a little off. But I'd say like 95% of the video was just a great factual rebuttal of the ancient astronaut Theory and he tackles all the big claims that say that, like, some of the structures in Central or South America, the blocks are so perfectly cut that it could only have been done with a laser, people could have cut those blocks by themselves. You know, regarding these kind of like ancient temples and pyramidal structures and stuff, that he would go into painstaking detail about how given the type of stone it was how you could use you know a combination of sand and certain type of uh, certain types of tools and explain that relatively easily humans could produce these kind of blocks And he'd even show little clips from ancient aliens and then refute what or kind of debunk what was being said. And he would even show just how, uh, over and over again, not just was it a case of dealing with shaky theories, but the ancient alien proponents were just factually wrong. End of story. And uh, they'd claim that certain ancient structures were built out of a particular type of stone that could be worked easily. And it would turn out, nope, according to archaeologists, it was built with a different kind of stone. Or there's just all these, like, factual errors. And I guess the ancient alien proponents get most of their beliefs from, uh, of course, I think it's, is it Eric von Daniken, I think? Or maybe is it, is that his name? Yeah, it's Eric von Daniken. He wrote, uh, a bunch of books on the ancient astronaut, uh, theory decades ago. I think one of the big ones was chariots of the gods. And this is a reference to how, you know, they believe that uh, these chariots and different things mentioned in everything from the Bible to ancient mythology are actually spacecrafts, yada, yada. But uh, yeah, so I think they, they get a lot of their theories from Eric von Daniken. Then there's another guy, I think his last name is Sitchin or Sitchins or something like that. And he was just pointing out how this Sitchin's guy, just in his books, just gets facts completely wrong, or seems to just pull facts out of the ether. And uh, I said ether instead of something else, uh, trying to be polite here. And he never offers any real academic citations or anything. He'll quote books like the um, I don't know, it could be ancient Indian texts like the Bhagavad Gita. Or uh, something like that, and he'll never give you the exact, you know, page number or location in the text uh, to back that uh, to back up what he's saying. And when you actually investigate, a lot of what the guy says is just false. And then there were some other biggies like. Um, there's one thing that IRA knew about, but I thought he explained it nicely. It's something referred to by ancient alien uh, theorists as the Dendera light or the uh, Dendera light bulb. And Dendera just refers to its location. It's found in a crypt in the uh, Dendera temple complex in Egypt. I think specifically it's in um, the temple of the goddess Hathor within the uh, temple complex. So basically, what it is is a stone relief that depicts what ancient alien theorists say looks like a giant kind of eggplant-shaped light bulb, and they're trying to say that the Egyptians used electric light to light the insides of tombs and pyramids while well, they did their um, drawings or tomb paintings, and the ancient and he, I think he played a clip of the guy with the big hair <laughs> from Ancient Aliens. Um, with the funny uh, Greek-sounding last names, the guy with the funny Italian-sounding last name. And the guy was saying that even though mainstream archaeologists say that the Egyptians used torchlight um, while they were working inside these structures, this ancient aliens guy claims that no soot or kind of discoloration has ever been found on the ceilings of, of these Egyptian structures and that so torches must not have been used it must have been electric light and uh, this guy who did this documentary was pointing out no it's the mainstream archaeological view that they did use torches in fact you can find plenty examples of kind of blackened or discolored uh, ceilings or whatever including in the Dendera complex where this supposed image of a light bulb is found Uh, So anyway, you know, this is one of the biggies that the ancient alien proponents often uh, tout that this drawing plainly shows a giant light bulb complete with a filament and even, you know, the screw type of butt end or whatever. And like I already knew, uh, this guy points out that this is actually kind of typical Egyptian symbolism that draws from one of the versions of the Egyptian creation myth, where what looks like the end of a light bulb is actually a lotus flower, which is used often in ancient Egyptian art. Um, What looks like a light bulb is actually supposed to be kind of like an air bubble or whatever, and what looks like a filament is actually a snake emerging from the Lotus. And, uh, one of the main Egyptian deities, uh, and there's different versions of many of the Egyptian deities and sometimes, uh, deities would become kind of combined or fused. If I remember correctly, I think it's actually one of these fused versions of the sun god Ra or Re. um, Fused with another deity, it might have been uh, Atan or Atum Ray. and but the deity is depicted as a snake or a serpent, and in the uh, and uh, it was actually the narrator of this documentary that specifically names Atum Ray. but I think you can find the names of different deities associated with this uh, imagery. But the point is, it's a depiction of a prominent. Egyptian deity in the form of a snake or serpent emerging from a lotus. And as I said, it's a part of the Egyptian creation story. And there's a number of ancient Egyptian creation stories. There's the story of the primordial mound, not to be vulgar, but there's a version of the creation myth where a god basically masturbates the world into existence. And in this one, there's a story where Because Lotuses actually emerge from the water, there's a creation story where a Lotus emerges and from the Lotus, this one version of the main creator god in the form of a snake, the snake, one of uh, ancient Egypt's sacred animals, you can often see the snake on, um, not only in tomb paintings and stuff like that, but on uh, pharaonic crowns, for example. Uh, But the snake emerges from the lotus An ancient alien theorists, uh, were trying to characterize this as, um, an ancient light bulb. But if you had even a basic understanding of ancient Egyptian, uh, symbolism, you can easily detect the snake and the lotus, um, and actually, uh, here's a site called EgyptianMyths.net, and it gives a little synopsis about the god Atum. Atum was one of the most ancient gods in Egypt and was part of the Heliopolitan cosmology. Originally, an earth god, he became associated with Rei, the sun god. Specifically, he was considered to be the setting sun. In later times, he became associated with Ptah, or Ta, and eventually Osiris. According to the priests of Heliopolis, Adam was the first being to emerge from the waters of Nun at the time of creation. Originally, he was a serpent in Nun and will return to that form at the end of time. However, Adam was depicted in art as a man wearing the double crown of Upper and Lower Egypt. As such, he is the first living man-god conceived of by the ancient Egyptians. Until then, their gods were all forms of animals. Following his self-creation from none, Atum created his children Shu and Tefnut by masturbating. This may seem impossible, but Atom was a bisexual god. He embodied both the male and female aspects of life. Therefore, his semen contained all that was necessary to create new life and deities. The Egyptians called Atom Great He-She, and his name meant the complete one. Later myths said that his children were products of his relationship with his shadow, or with the goddess I use sausage. Another thing is, uh, I forget which part of. um, I'm trying to think if it's Peruvian or if it's Incan. I'm actually looking at the Ancient Aliens Debunked website now, and they're saying it's from a civilization known as the uh, Tolima, and it's actually saying that um, the Tolima were a pre-Columbian civilization. But this is another one that the Ancient Aliens proponents often uh, like to use as this kind of gotcha evidence. How are you going to refute this one? And they show this little gold figurine that really does look like an airplane. It has kind of a big rounded head with two almost airplane-like wings, uh, wing-like structures projecting from the sides. And then it has a uh, tail that almost looks like the back of a conventional aircraft with a a rudder or whatever, and they'll say, no birds look like this. Uh, you can't say this is an animal. This is an ancient craft. And uh, as this guy points out nicely, what they don't tell you is that hundreds of these little gold figurines have been discovered, and most of them resemble animals. Um, And clearly resemble animals, not vehicles or ancient fighter jets or something. And he did this one thing that I thought was kind of a nice uppercut to the breadbasket for uh, ancient aliens. Um, He showed a picture of the supposed little fighter jet figurine next to a picture of a certain type of catfish that comes from that area. And the catfish looks just about identical to the figurine. It's this weird type of species of a uh, catfish that itself is almost kind of oddly airplane shaped. It has a large head with two kind of um, triangular, uh, I guess, what would we call them? Pectoral fins. And then, you know, it has a, a a tail that's similar to the tail on the figurine. And the figurine even has these little decorative protrusions on the front of the quote-unquote wings. And this catfish has almost these weird little sucker-like protrusions that line the front of its fins. So the guy just had all of this great evidence, I thought, rebutting ancient aliens. In the places where I I differed with him were on things like, I think in passing, he was mentioning uh, various flood narratives from around the world, say the Noah story versus uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and things like that. And he was saying that he didn't think that the Epic of Gilgamesh influenced the Noah story. He was trying to say that they probably both had a common source either an actual event or another myth or, you know, or, or another version of the tale that they both drew from. And I didn't know how much I agreed with that. I think they're probably, uh, I I think that flood narratives probably are what's known as a geo myth, meaning that there was probably some kind of real event or events that led people to make up stories about floods, I'm not saying that the Noah story is true. I'm not saying that the entire Earth was inundated and only a little boat full of people and animals survived, not by any means. But we know that there have been major floods in certain parts of the ancient world and things like that, and uh, even increased water levels as uh, the Ice Age receded, etc. So there very well might be some actual natural events that helped inspire these flood narratives. But I think whether it's from articles I read or from watching documentaries, I think there's been a number of times that I've heard mainstream academics say that they believe that ancient Sumerian uh, mythology influenced the religious beliefs of the uh, of the ancient Hebrews. Uh, not just Sumerian, but obviously Canaanite, mythology. And we know most likely that monotheism grew out of polytheism. And there's uh, plenty examples in the Bible where the Bible seems to borrow from or be inspired by uh, Canaanite and or um, ancient Mesopotamian religion. So I don't know, am I 100% certain that, say, the biblical authors were ripping off the Epic of Gilgamesh? putting it crudely. No, I'm not 100% certain, but I know that I've heard plenty of academics say that ancient Mesopotamian religion uh, probably influenced um, ancient Judaism. Also, we know that uh, although the stories probably predate the written versions, we know a lot of the Old Testament uh, was written during what they call the Babylonian captivity, when it's thought that the religious beliefs of the Babylonians who were, as suggested by the term Babylonian captivity, were keeping uh, the um, ancient Israelites captive, um, in that a lot of their beliefs may have influenced the the authors of the uh, Old Testament. So could there have been a common source that they were both borrowing from, uh, rather than that the one influenced the other? Maybe, who knows. I still think these are all man-made belief systems we're dealing with so in a sense it's kind of all academic but and, and I should say full disclosure it's kind of strange cuz this guy is so articulate and thoughtful and intelligent that it's it's hard to believe it but he starts out the show saying that he used to believe in this stuff that that for a while he fully embraced the ancient astronaut uh, hypothesis and I also got the thought in a couple of fleeting places And maybe it's just me reading into it, but I got the the feeling that he might be a religious person, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I'm not saying burn him at the stake or, you know, but uh, I got the feeling that he might be a believer. There was one fleeting point where he phrases something in a way that seems kind of disparaging to atheists and agnostics and a couple of places where he seems to try to uphold the dignity or the integrity of the biblical accounts of things. Uh, So I I don't know if he has perhaps a religious agenda, but that being said, like I said, 95% of the video, and it's a three-hour long video, was probably just good, solid, factual debunking of this ancient alien nonsense, or at least I consider it nonsense. And the reason why I started down this whole uh, path was because I've been talking about cognitive bias and how even in the face of facts, people still want to cling to their particular worldview, no matter how distorted it might be. And this video has over 37,000 comments. And, and at the top of the uh, comments thread, and it got 77 likes, someone who refers to himself as grammar Nazi, 7481 and i think he actually misspelled grammar uh g r a m m e r i don't know if that was intentional and meant to be ironic or not and his little uh, profile pic looks like a swastika with a g in it don't know if that would be my choice <laughs> but uh anyway and i'll censor myself a little a little he drops an f bomb hair. after all this after like 3 hours of factual rebuttal. He says, I still believe the ancient alien theory. F this video. This guy doesn't know shit. I left him the second curse word. (laughs) Um, I'm like, really, man? It reminds me of I was watching another video recently. It was just a scholarly documentary on the subject of who wrote the Bible. And it talks about the authorship of the various books of the Bible and how, like, Bart Ehrman likes to say, all we really have is copies of copies, you know. And there was still people going nuts, you know, who were basically outraged, saying that the video was anti-religion and all. And there was some sane individual who said something like, I think, and he dropped an F-bomb. I'll censor it once again, Uh, censor myself once again. He said, this is why humanity is f Even in the face of fact, people still deny the evidence. And then he says, disgusting. And and I I mean, it it was, uh, maybe his language was a little over the top or whatever, or crude, but I'm like, exactly. He summed it up pretty nicely. And it is kind of disturbing and disheartening how people can want to cling to their distorted beliefs so much that they will deny even the strongest evidence. And so this is interesting. And I know I really only spoke on a surface level in passing about uh, the idea that, the Hebrew Bible bor- borrows from Sumerian or Mesopotamian mythology, and I probably didn't do a good job of it. And it is a topic I've covered a lot in past episodes, so I'll just read a little bit from a Wikipedia article in- entitled Pan Babylonism. It says, uh, Pan Babylonism, that's a tough word, but anyway is a school of thought within Assyriology and religious studies that considers the Hebrew Bible and Judaism to be directly derived from Mesopotamian, uh, in parentheses, Babylonian mythology. Appearing in the late 19th century, it gained popularity in the early 20th century, advocated notably by Alfred Jeremiah, or Jeremiah's, the ideas presented within its framework still carry importance in mythological studies due to similarities between myths in the comparatively young Bible and much older myths from ancient Mesopotamian mythologies. And further down, it talks about creation myths, and uh, it mentions the Enuma Elish, uh, which I've mentioned uh, previously on the show, which is the, uh, Mespita- one of the Mesopotamian creation myths. It says, in the beginning of both myths, the universe is shapeless and there is nothing but water. In the beginning of the Enuma Elish, there's Abzu, fresh water, and Tiamat, salt water. If you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, you guys are probably familiar with the uh, name Tiamat, (laughs) which mingle together. In the beginning of Genesis, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Jewish God Yahweh is hovering over the waters. It has been argued that the Hebrew word for the deep, Tehom, or I don't know how to pronounce that, T-E-H-O-M, is cognate with Tiamat. In the Enuma Elish there are 6 generations of gods created one after the other. Each god is associated with something such as the sky or earth. This parallels the 6 days of creation in Genesis where Elohim plural creates a different thing on each day. In the Enuma Elish the 6th generation god Marduk consults with other gods and decides to make mankind as servants so that the gods can rest. Likewise, Elohim makes mankind on the sixth day, saying, Let us make mankind in our image, and then rest in our image. Is that the royal we? Uh, let's see. In both myths, day and night precede the creation of the luminous bodies. Genesis 1, 5, 8, and 13. Anuma Elish uh, thirty eight, whose function is to yield light and mark time. This must be from the Enuma Elish. He fashioned stands for the great gods. As for the stars, he set up constellations corresponding to them. He designated the year and marked out its divisions. Apportioned three stars each to twelve months when he had made plans of the days of the year. And from Genesis, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And so it was. That says the days of the week and their ritual implications from Genesis can be compared to the Atrahasis, which de- that's another uh, Mesopotamian creation myth, which describes the evolution of the weekly calendars prescribed by the creator god Enki. As in Genesis, the seventh day is seen as the end of the week, which consists of six regular days. For Babylonians, the first, seventh, and fifteenth of the month were holy days, and each month lasted for five seven day weeks. This is the Enuma Elish portrays Marduk as setting the constellations in place rather than being bound by their movements, as had all former gods. The henotheistic idea that one god had control over the movement of the stars, which represented the other gods, appears as a transit to biblical monotheism. And I've covered this before. This is talking about parallels between the Epic of Gilgamesh and um, parts of uh, the Genesis story, such as The Fall in the Garden... And the Noah In both tales, there is a plant that can bestow immortality, and a snake that prevents the characters from gaining that immortality. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh finds a plant that can restore youthfulness, but it is snatched from him by a snake. In Genesis, Yahweh tells Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit from the Tree of Knowledge in the Garden of Eden, saying that they will die if they do so. However, a snake convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the tree, saying, you will not certainly die. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yahweh then banishes Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden, lest they also eat from the Tree of Life and live forever. It talks about the Great Flood. The 11th Tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh contains the Utnapishtim flood myth. and has a number of parallels to the Noah flood myth of Genesis 6 through 9. And uh, Utnapishtim, I actually read the Epic of Gilgamesh from beginning to end, Uh, was it like last year? And I think I was talking about that while I was doing an episode on it. Utnapishtim uh, is basically uh, Noah in the Gilgamesh epic. He's an anti-deluvian. You know, we have anti-deluvians in the Hebrew Bible. These people with incredibly long lifespans. Utnapishtim lives for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he survived the uh, great flood, like Noah survived the flood, and as you know, by building a ship as directed by the gods, etc. Both tales begin with a god becoming angry at mankind, and the Epic of Gilgamesh and Lil was disturbed so much by the noise of mankind, they decided to wipe wipe it out with a flood. In Genesis, Yahweh decides to wipe out mankind with a flood because of mankind's wickedness. In both tales, a god warns a man of the coming flood so that he and his family can be saved. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the god Ea or Enki, disagrees with Enlil's plan and warns a man called Etnepishtim. In Genesis, Yahweh warns Noah because he is righteous, blameless, and walked faithfully with God. And here's a couple of abstracts from uh, both. Here's one from the Epic of Gilgamesh. All the living beings that I had, I loaded on it. I had all my kith and kin go up into the boat, all the beasts and animals of the field. Now here's Genesis. Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind. (laughs) Okay, so... I mean, I guess to be fair to the guy who made that Ancient Aliens debunked video, this doesn't tell us definitively whether or not these two traditions are both derived from a third, older tradition. You know, we don't know that, but it also doesn't disprove the idea that uh, ancient Mesopotamian mythology heavily influenced Biblical, shall we say, mythology. In fact, it seems to reinforce the idea. So just some uh, food for thought there. And since I mentioned the Babylonian captivity and passing, I might as well give you guys just a brief synopsis of what it is, just in case. And this is from Britannica.com. Hopefully it'll make all you people who don't like Wikipedia happy. Uh, Babylonian exile, uh, also called Babylonian captivity, the forced detention of Jews in Babylonia following the latter's conquest of the kingdom of Judah in 598 or, um, 597 and 587 or 586 BC. The exile formally ended in 538 BC when the Persian conqueror of Babylonia, Cyrus the Great, gave the Jews permission to return to Palestine. Historians agree that several deportations took place, that not all Jews were forced to leave their homeland, that returning Jews left Babylonia at various times, and that some Jews chose to remain in Babylonia thus constituting the first of numerous Jewish communities living permanently in the diaspora. Okay, I might as well do one news story. I don't know how relative this will be, but uh, I was scanning the Huffington Post about a week ago, and it seemed relative at the time, so I bookmarked it, (laughs) and... uh, it's entitled, Megyn Kelly thinks Obama's comments about Christians are doing real damage to the country. If you're not familiar, uh, Megyn Kelly is a Fox News uh, personality. I think she's been with the network for years. Then maybe a year or so ago, they finally gave her her own show. And I don't know how happy Bill O'Reilly was about about that. If I remember correctly, she may have been... Uh, Closing in, if not surpassing, Bill O'Reilly in the ratings at certain points. Uh, But let's see. Megyn Kelly is not taking President Barack Obama's recent comments about Christianity lightly. During an Easter prayer breakfast on Tuesday, Obama told an audience that he gets concerned when he hears less-than-loving expressions by Christians. But that's a topic for another day, he continued. Like clockwork, Fox News responded with a bit of a freakout about the damaging effect of his words. And this is by, uh, Catherine Taibbi, I should say. His remarks come as Christians are increasingly being targeted... And I don't know if they're quoting Megan Kelly here, but says his remarks come as Christians are increasingly being targeted by terrorists worldwide. Okay, Kelly said Tuesday evening, referring to the nearly 150 people killed in a terror attack on a Kenya university last week. And also citing the 21 Egyptians killed at the hands of the Islamic State Militant Group in February. Tony Perkins, president of the Anti-Gay Family Research Council, backed her up, suggesting that Obama's policies are quote-unquote, fostering an environment where tyrants and terrorists fail free to kill people. Even that was a bit much for Kelly, who took it back a notch and told Perkins that he had gone too far. But she did wonder whether Obama's comments were causing serious harm to the Christian community. This is the Easter prayer breakfast, okay? Like the holiest holiday in Christianity, Easter, she said, blasting Obama for making that the place where he goes off script to criticize Christians. The question is whether those comments do real damage, not just to morale among Christians, but what their president thinks of them, but to the enemy, that they feel he won't stand up for Christians who are under threat, and that must be from a Megyn Kelly, too. And there's that weird thing where believers kind of play the victim card, where or Christians do. America is still a predominantly Christian country. And, you know, President Barack Obama has made a couple of passing comments within maybe the last half a year, where it seems like he's trying to be fair to all faiths. So instead of favoring Christianity, even though supposedly he's a uh, Christian. He, and I don't say that sarcastically. I mean, um, he, he calls himself a Christian. Uh, people on the right, you know, em- embrace that ridiculous idea that he's a secret Muslim, you know, <laughs> and people on the left will try to say, oh, he's secretly an atheist. He, you know, um, he just pretends to be religious. Uh, who knows what the truth is? Only Barack Obama knows. We can't be inside his, his uh, heart or head. Uh, but he he uh, labels himself a Christian. And there's been a couple of times when he's been, uh, recent, like I said, maybe in the last half year, he's been a little critical of Christianity, nothing bad. And, uh, he, you know, when he's... I think the last time maybe he brought up things like the Crusades, well, he's trying to make a point about how you know it's not just Islam that has a problem with violence and that even in the past, Christianity has been responsible for some things uh, like you know the Crusades, the Inquisition, uh, things like that, uh, pogroms, etc. And he caught a lot of flack for that. And now he's catching flack for this. And all he did was say that that he's concerned when he hears, quote-unquote, less-than-loving expressions by Christians. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Uh, I would expand it to it's troubling when you hear less-than-loving expressions from humans in general. But, yeah, but there is something particularly off-putting when you hear kind of hyper-religious people say um, less-than-loving things, though, I think. And the idea that ISIS is killing people... Killing Christians because Obama isn't being staunchly Christian enough. And I don't think it matters how outspokenly Christian Barack Obama is or not. ISIS doesn't like us and they don't like our president. And they don't need an excuse to kill Christians. They don't like Christians. <laughs> you know, they don't like people who are anything but Muslim. Remember how they treated the Yazidis and even, uh, Muslims who don't belong to their particular sect of Islam. And you could probably argue that if President Obama was even more outspokenly supportive of Christianity, that would make them want to kill Christians all the more. I don't think ISIS is standing around saying, you know, Obama doesn't seem to care about the Christians that much. We can probably get away with killing them. We've already been droning, uh, under the Obama administration, droning the hell out of the Middle East, um, we already attacked ISIS, thankfully, rightfully, I think, uh, to help save the Yazidis. So, you know, remember when they were trapped atop Mount Sinjar uh, with other uh, religious minorities? Um, so ISIS already doesn't like us, and they already don't like Christians. I, I don't think... Obama's stance on Christianity really matters that much to them. I think this is just another case of. Uh, remember back during the Bush administration, they would talk about Bush derangement syndrome. Uh, I definitely think there's Obama derangement syndrome. You know, as someone who's progressive but also likes to think of himself as a political independent to a degree, and someone who tries to be intellectually honest and objective, it gets so tiresome. You know, either way. Uh, There was a lot of things I didn't like about the Bush administration, including their being responsible for getting us bogged down in uh, Iraq unnecessarily and uh, in the scary way that Bush claimed to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but let God do some of the decision-making for him. Uh, But it seems like no matter who's in office, you have to listen to at least four or eight years of constant bashing from people in the media on the other side of the political divide and right now we're at the tail end of eight years of obama bashing uh from fox news but before you know it it'll be 2016 and then we'll get to see what fresh horrors await us <laughs> but i've been at this for over an hour and i don't want to get bogged down in a political discussion so I guess with and I can also hear my chihuahua snorting and licking in the background. So <laughs> might be a good time to uh, bring this episode to a close. Uh, you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, uh, rate the show or subscribe through iTunes. Uh, check out the archives on Podbean. You can help out the show through podbean also um, by making a donation or purchasing the uh brief history of saint patrick documentary for uh audio documentary for 99 cents uh like heresy you can support the show through patreon and the show is also available on stitcher too i sometimes forget to mention that and with that uh thanks for listening and until next week <laughs>